Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Over the last several weeks, you've all heard me raising suspicions about Detective Roy Swainson's integrity as an investigator. I'll start with Zaragoza Garza's trial testimony, where we learned that Swainson's documentation of Garza's statement was, well, let's just say, adjusted to fit more neatly into the state's case against Jennifer. From there, we began taking a closer look at the witness descriptions of Jennifer's clothing and her hair, and in my opinion, those appear to be altered as well. And if we go back even further, we have the incident where Jen was taken to the station for her final interrogation. Remember, according to Harriet Jeffley, Swainson told Jen's grandmother that she could follow him to the police station, and then he took off without her when she went inside to get her keys. At trial, Swainson took the stand and was questioned about his investigation. Today, I'm going to be breaking down that testimony, and we're also going to hear directly from a key witness in the case. This is Season 10, Episode 22, Swainson and Peters. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. I'm going to begin this episode with what is, I'm sure, going to be a very bland explanation of Swainson's trial testimony. But rest assured, things are going to get a lot more spicy by the time we're done. So let's just jump right in. At the time of trial, Roy Swainson had been a Houston police officer for 19 years and had been assigned to the Homicide Division for five years. And the prosecutor, Dee Glazer, doesn't waste any more time than that going into his background. She gets right into the case. Swainson says that he arrived on the scene at 11 a.m. on the morning of the murder. He and Detective Wayman Allen were assigned as partners to investigate. 
He explains that he and Alan rotate from case to case the responsibilities on the scene. In this case, Alan was responsible for what Swainson calls the scene side, and Swainson himself was responsible for the witness side of the investigation. Then Glazer moves right on to having Swainson identify Jennifer in the courtroom and confirm that he did in fact make contact with her during the investigation. He says that his first contact with Jennifer was inside of Eva's apartment. He explains that the first arriving patrol officer, I assume he's referring to Peekert here, had done some initial interviewing of the people around the scene and had asked Jen and Eva to remain inside of the apartment until detectives could interview them. When Swainson walked into the apartment, Jen, Eva, and, quote, a couple fellow officers were inside waiting. And also note here that Katie and Youngster are long since gone at this point. Swainson says that he separated Eva and Jennifer and interviewed them separately at the scene. He had one step out of the apartment while he interviewed the other and vice versa. The prosecutor refers to both of these conversations as, quote, brief interviews in her questions. Swainson goes on to say that he also interviewed Keith Truesdale at the scene and then requested that all three of the witnesses go to the station to give written statements. Glazer then asked Swainson what was said during his oral interview of Jennifer at the scene. I'll read his response directly from the transcript. Quote, She was in the apartment. She stated that she had spent the night there at Mondragon's apartment and that early in the morning at approximately 8.45, she received a page, digital page, from her pager. There's no phone in that particular apartment, so she was going to leave and go to another apartment to use that phone. I asked her what the pager number was and if I could see her pager. She claimed that she had already erased the page but she provided a name of Craig Peters and a phone number. I then asked her who else was in the apartment when this took place. She said that there was Eva and two other fellows in the apartment. The names of those two individuals escaped her at the time. She said that she left the house to use the phone, and upon her return from using the phone, that she found Eva at the base of the steps calling into the downstairs apartment. Glacier. What else did she tell you? Swainson. That was really about it. Glacier. And at that particular point, did you then believe that she had information that might be of assistance in this investigation? Swainson. That she was there at the base of the steps when a voice had called out from the apartment. So I hoped that she had some further information about all of that. Glazer. Based on your conversations then with these three folks out at the crime scene, did they go down to the police department and give written statements? Swainson. That's correct. Couple things here. Swainson's testimony matches up basically perfect with his report regarding Jen's oral interview. His report on the interview is short and sweet, just like his testimony. But as I was looking back across his reports, I came across Eva's first oral interview. I reread it and noticed some more discrepancies. First of all, and I may have pointed this out before, but in Eva's first interview, she doesn't say anything about Katie sleeping in the living room with her. And in this first version, she says that she jumped off the couch when she realized that she was hearing screaming coming from downstairs. In this first version, Youngster didn't come out and wake her up and ask about the screaming. Rather, he just followed her outside. But more importantly, she doesn't mention anything about Jennifer asking her to lie or anything about hearing Jen telling the police that she was the one that told Eva to get help. None of that was included in her first interview. It wasn't until she'd been transported to the station to give a written statement that these two details are added to the story. And what's more interesting than the changing story is the fact that Eva states in her written statement 
that she overheard Jen tell the police that she had been the one to direct Eva to go get help. But I don't see how that's possible. Jen spoke with two officers on the scene, Officer Piekert and then Swainson. Based on the report, she didn't tell either of the two officers any such thing. And Swainson is clear to point out that the two girls were kept separated during their interviews. So Eva couldn't have heard anything that Jen was saying to him. So what I'm getting at is that Eva told police that she overheard Jen telling the police that she was present during the screaming, but she tells them that before Jen ever said it to anyone. So how did Eva know that Jen was going to say that? Is she psychic? Or could she perhaps be the source of that particular lie? Another thing that I want to point out is that Swainson claims that Jennifer had deleted the pages from her pager prior to the interview. But last week in Texas, I was able to track down Craig Peters. And that's not how he remembers it. They claim that they didn't have her pager records. You know, they, they said, you know, well, she said that she talked to you, but there's no pager records. They have no confirmation of it. But if they were telling you and they, asking they you. They called me from her page. They had her pager. Uh-huh. They had possession of her pager. Uh-huh. And that's when he called me. Like I said, I don't remember, you know, if it was a page, page. I had to stop. I think I had to stop and call from a from a pay phone because that's how we used to operate. Right. And, and, and he had a pager. That's how he ended up uh, calling me. So he was going through her pager. Exactly. Exactly. I had a page and it kept blowing up. I guess, you know, we kept it on vibrate or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it kept going off, whatever. He said, hey, hey, why you keep calling? What are you to her? And and this and that. And, you know, I said, what's going on? Who is you, you know? And, you know, he was like, you know, I'm detective so-and-so. I said, okay, well, what's going on? You know, and he said, well, uh, I can't explain to you. Uh, I need to talk to you. And uh, uh, can you come uh, over here to, uh, was it Green Arbor Apartments, I believe it was? Yeah. And uh, I said, yeah, I said, I'm on my way off of Highway 3, so I swung through there on the way back, and he wasn't there. When the detective had you on the phone and asked you to meet him, did, did he ask you, had you talked to her that day? <sighs> see, I don't see. I ain't going to even say yeah, and I ain't going to say no. I know he, he, he was more concerned of, of who I was and why was I blowing her phone up. That was what more uh-huh. he was more on, you know, like, like hey, uh... uh um, why you why why you why you call so many times? Why you call a phone so many times? You know, I'm like, hey, what's going on? You know, I'm 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 lost. I'm right. lost first off, you know, and then I'm like, wait, well, hey, what's going on? So it's kind of spooking me at the same time. But um, you know, he he didn't explain nothing. You know, he just said, you know, well, we need to talk to you, you know. And when I left, and went over there, it wasn't now, you know, and that's the last I even heard from or of them. The way Craig remembers things, when he was called by the detective, he was told that the officer was looking at the pager and was asking why Craig had been paging Jennifer so many times. He says he can't remember if they ever even asked him if he had talked to Jennifer that morning. What he remembers is them wanting to know why he kept paging her. And you heard him say that the call kind of spooked him. Well, he had a good reason to be spooked, which is why I tend to trust his memory of what was said on the call. But we'll get into why Craig was so nervous in just a little bit after we finish Swainson's testimony. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Moving along through Swainson's testimony, at this point, he has confirmed that he spoke with Jen, Eva, and Keith Truesdale on the scene, and all three of them had gone to the station to provide written statements. Next up, Glacier Ed Swainson confirmed to the jury that Jennifer was just a witness. She was not a suspect at this point. She was not handcuffed and she was free to leave at any time. He then goes on to talk about his return trip to the complex on the evening of the murder. He says that he and Detective Allen first went to Jennifer's mother's apartment. Jennifer wasn't home at the time, but her mother and her grandmother were. Swainson says that he told Jackie and Harriet that they needed to talk to Jennifer because they were trying to locate Katie and Youngster. Then, after leaving Jackie's apartment, Swainson and Allen came across Jennifer in the complex. And This entire line of questioning is extremely vague. No questions about what went on at the Jeffley apartment. They don't say if they searched it why they were there. We don't know where in the complex they came across Jennifer. Was it at Eva's? Was it outside of Eva's? Was it somewhere else entirely? We just don't get any of these types of details. According to the testimony, Jennifer tells Swainson that she had just seen Youngster. And he says that she told him that she had not passed along his message to Youngster that he wanted to speak with him. And then the testimony about that night ends right there. No mention of the fact that Jen pointed Youngster out to the detectives, and no mention of the oral interview that took place that night in the complex. We only find that information in Detective Allen's testimony. Glacier doesn't get into it at all. She just moves right on to the next day, the day of Jennifer's confession. Right off the bat, Swainson's testimony is full of discrepancies. He not only contradicts what Jennifer's grandmother says happened that morning, but he even contradicts his own report. Remember that one of the big hurdles that the state has to get over is the jury getting the impression that anything shady or manipulative was done in order to coerce Jennifer's confession. And Swainson starts laying that groundwork right here. First of all, he tells the jury that Jennifer's mother was home when he went to speak with Jen on the morning of the 30th. But in his own report, he says that only Jennifer's grandmother and sister were home when he first stopped by. And according to both of them, they never knew that Swainson was even there during his first visit of the morning. But in his testimony, he states to the jury that on the morning of the 30th, he found Jennifer inside of her apartment with her mother, who again, we know for a fact, was at work at this point. Swainson says that he asked Jennifer to use his cell phone to page Youngster. And she does so, and then Youngster calls right back. Now, to be clear, this isn't the visit where Swainson took Jen to the station. That happened an hour or two later. This first stop was only to find Youngster. And according to the family, they never knew Swainson had even been there at this point. 
So Detective Swainson speaks to Youngster on the phone and makes arrangements to go to his house to speak with him and KD. Swainson and Detective Allen leave the complex in separate vehicles and head over to Youngster's house. And again, we have no details at all of what happened inside the house, other than the fact that both boys agreed to go to the station to give written statements. Youngster went straight to the station in Detective Allen's car, and Katie rode with Swainson back to the apartment so that they could pick up Jennifer. I'd love to know what was actually said at Youngster's house that morning. What we know now, in hindsight, is that neither Youngster or KD's written statements really contradict Jennifer's. Both of them say that at one point or another during the fake voice screaming scenario that Jennifer was there, and Youngster even confirms, not that I believe it, but he confirms that Jennifer was the first one to say that someone should call 911. So what did they say to Swainson and Allen at the house that caused Swainson to double back and pick up Jennifer that morning? I think that if he knew he wanted another statement from her before he went, he would have taken her with him. It would seem odd to me to potentially lose track of a suspect when you had her right there with you. But instead, he leaves her at the apartment complex, goes and talks to the boys, and then decides to go back and get her for another statement. My personal theory is that Swainson and Allen smelled a rat after talking to Katie and Youngster. Everyone was telling similar stories, but they were all off in the details since for some reason it never occurred to them that Eva might have been the one who was doing the lying, I think that the plan was to put the three of them in separate rooms and hope to get them to turn on each other. But since nothing was recorded, we have no idea what was said in the interview rooms. But if I had to bet, I'd guess that they were leaning pretty hard on Katie and Youngster to get him to flip, which could be how we ended up with written statements that read like the reciting of a confused dream. Just look at what Alan says himself that he did to Jennifer. When she finally comes off her first story and says, okay, I'll tell you the truth, she tells him that Eva and her friend were going to rough up Catalina. But Alan refuses to accept that. And then eventually we end up with this nonsensical confession. If you haven't listened to my true crime binge interview with false confession expert Laura Nyrider, you really should take time to check it out. It's episode number 39. We speak almost exclusively about the process of the psychology that leads to juvenile false confessions. And it happens just like this. The detectives will wear them down by refusing to accept the truth that they're telling them. Eventually, they just give up. We see it time and time again, specifically with juvenile suspects. Once they catch on to the fact that the officer will not accept the truth, they begin trying to construct a story that they think the cop is looking for, especially if they're innocent and they don't actually know what happened. And the result is usually nonsense. And that's because the person being interrogated doesn't actually know what happened, but the detective has given them just enough clues that they're able to piece something together with the bones of a theory. Prior to today, I never really considered what the interrogations of Katie and Youngster were like. I just read the written statements and tried to separate the fact from the fiction. For some reason, I've always just assumed that they just sat down and that's what they said and that was it. I never really thought much about why the fiction is there to begin with. I just assumed that it's because they were lying in order to cover for someone, most likely in my opinion, Eva. But let's really think about this. These two were scared teenage boys. 
Allen's report says that he wasn't buying the story that Youngster was telling back at the house, although he never documented what he actually said. And how different would this case look if we were to find out that either one of them, or both of them, at some point told the officers the same thing that Jennifer told Allen, that Eva planned to rough up Catalina with her friend. Had they said that, do you think the detectives would have disregarded their statements just like they did Jennifer's? Would the boys have been told that the police know that they're lying? Because that's not what Eva said. I think that we can at least all agree that based on Alan's report, the boys weren't taken to the station for the purpose of simply retelling the story that they told at their house. They wanted a written statement and they wanted it written their way. Which I think is why they pulled them out of the house away from their mother who was there and took them to the station where they could get him alone in an interview room. Back in the courtroom, Swainson explains to the jury how he went to the apartments to pick up Jennifer. I'll first give you Jennifer's grandmother's version of events, and then we'll get into what Swainson told the jury. Harriet Jeffley testified that Swainson knocked on the door and let her know that he was talking to Jennifer. Since Harriet didn't see any issue with that, she said okay. She says a few minutes later, her other daughter, Jackie's sister, came into the apartment and told Harriet that the police were taking Jen away. Grandma then walks out of the apartment and sees Swainson putting Jennifer into the back of an unmarked car. She then runs out to the parking lot and asks him where he's taking her, and she asks if she can ride along. She says that Swainson tells her that there's not enough room in the car, so Harriet asks if she can get her keys and follow him to the station, because she's not from Houston and she doesn't know her way around. Swainson agrees, and then when she goes inside to get the keys, he leaves. That's how Jennifer's grandmother remembers things shaking out. But Swainson has a different story. At trial, he says that he finds Jennifer sitting outside of the stairs of her apartment. He tells her that he has Katie in the car and he'd like to take her to the station. He says that she agrees and he asks if her grandmother or mother are home. And right then, according to him, while they're at the stairs, Grandma opens the door. Now let me read to you Swainson's testimony about what happened next. Quote, she recognized me again as the officer that was there the night before and the morning there, and I told her that I would like to talk to Jennifer again, and I had their full cooperation. She said, fine. Someone is definitely lying here. These two stories don't even resemble each other. According to Swainson, he wasn't in the parking lot when Harriet chased him down. He was just standing right outside of Jennifer's door. Jennifer's aunt didn't notify Harriet that Swainson was putting Jen in the car in this version, Harriet just happened to pop outside just before they left the front door area. In Swainson's story, Harriet never asked him where he was taking Jen, and she didn't ask to ride along. And he most definitely didn't tell her that he would wait for her as she grabbed her keys and then leave her with no idea where he was taking her granddaughter. I mean, if you think that Katie and Youngster stories don't match up well, well, they've got nothing compared to the discrepancies between Harriet and Swainson. It's up to you to decide who's more credible. I have my own opinion, but I suppose I'll keep that to myself. Swainton says that once they got to the station, he first interviewed and then took a statement from KD. Just to reiterate, he says first he interviewed KD and then he took the written statement that we're all familiar with. And of course, we have no recordings or notes from that interview. We only have the finished product. 
Swainson again explains that Jennifer was not in custody and she was not a suspect when she went to the station. And he also explains what we already knew, that he interviewed KD and Boyd Smith interviewed Youngster and Wayman Allen interviewed Jennifer. But Swainson also gives the impression that he was bouncing around between the interview rooms during the interrogations. He goes on to say that once Allen got Jennifer to incriminate herself, he then notified Swainson that he was taking her to the magistrate for her warnings. Swainson testifies that when Jennifer was taken for her warnings, quote, I still had Kenneth Driver and Pharrell Smith at the station. Now, as a reminder, the three teens were taken to the station for questioning four hours before Jen was taken for her warnings. And I know I keep harping on this, but I think it's worth stressing that we really need to think hard about KD and Youngster's statements. These statements were by no means just a written account of what they said in their undocumented oral interviews. After four hours of interrogation, they were still at the police station putting those statements together. What that means is that those confusing, incoherent accounts of the morning were products of pressure put on them by police. Or as the Reed Technique Handbook puts it, psychological warfare. After Jennifer and Detective Allen return to the station with their dinners, Swainson is now sitting in on the process of taking her written statement. He acknowledges that while the statement was being taken, that Jennifer's mother called. Several episodes ago, we heard Jackie's account of how that conversation went. She said this was the last of several calls to Swainson throughout the day, and that she insisted this time that he tell her where they were so that she could come be there with Jennifer. In Jackie's version, Swainson told her, in Jennifer's presence, that they just need to finish up the statement and that he'd have her home soon. Of course, Swainson's story is very different. He tells the jury that Jackie calls. He asks Jen if she wants to talk to her mother, and she does so. No details are given other than that. However, he is admitting here that he broke the law. Not that anyone called him out on it. But he says in his testimony that Jen was in custody at that point and had been given her warnings which is the point where legally he is supposed to make his best effort to contact a parent to inform them of the situation before any written statements can be taken. Now, he doesn't deny doing this in direct. Glazer just never asks him if he informed Jackie that her daughter was now in custody. But later in Cross, he denies having told Jackie that Jen would be going home. And again, it's up to you to decide who to believe. And I'll also point out that if your answer to any of these questions is that Swainson is the one lying, then you really should be thinking twice about taking his written reports as gospel. If he is willing to lie to a jury under oath in a courtroom, or if you agree that he would knowingly and intentionally ignore his legal requirement to notify a parent that their child is in custody, which we know that he did, then how can we possibly assume that he wouldn't also modify witness statements in his reports? Glacier next touches on the specifics of Jennifer's confession. In doing so, she makes an interesting inference. If you've ever seen the movie The Usual Suspects, then you'll appreciate this. Glacier points out that in Jen's confession, she says that she committed the murder with a man named Ernest Swatson. And then... She asks the detective what his last name is, and he replies, Swainson. The implication is that Jennifer pulled a Kaiser Sose on the detectives. 
Direct continues with Glacier asking Swainson to explain the process of trying to find Ernest and Tim. He checked every version of the names in the police computer system and didn't come up with anything. Janet said in her interview that she met the guys at an apartment complex on the southwest side of Houston. So Swainson went to the complex and met with the TAC unit that's familiar with the names of the people that hang out in that particular apartment complex. He eventually meets with just about every cop that works the beat and passes the information along. He says that he actually went to three different substations trying to find these guys. And he says that he spoke with at least 50 officers. And no one had ever heard of Ernest Watson, E, Tim, or Slow. And with that, Glacier passes the witness for cross-examination. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coin begins cross-examination by having Swainson walk us through the process of interviewing Jen and Eva. He's pretty much just confirming what was already said in direct, just kind of changing the emphasis. He points out that Jen and Eva were sitting together in the apartment before the interview, indicating that they had time to talk to each other before giving their statements. Coin asks what Jen was wearing, and Swainson says that she's wearing a black t-shirt and blue jeans, which is something that really is a critical point. I know I keep harping on it, but this is more important than I can possibly stress to you. We've been having this black t-shirt debate for weeks, and I'm to the point where I'm about done debating the issue. I don't think anyone disagrees that Jen changed her clothes at some point before she went to the police station. All of the witnesses that claimed that she was wearing a black shirt also claim that she was wearing shorts. According to Swainson, Jennifer went straight from this interview to the station to give a written statement, meaning she had already changed at this point. She's not wearing shorts anymore. She's wearing jeans now. Jennifer says that she was wearing a white shirt during the time of the murder. She even says she's wearing the white shirt in her confession. And she even tells Alan where to find the shirt in Eva's apartment, which he does when he goes back and searches. Eva even says that she changed from a white shirt to a black shirt. If this isn't proof enough to you that Swainson doctored those witness statements, then I don't know what would be. What are the odds that every single witness, all of them, are consistent in the color of shirt she's wearing and every single one of them got that consistent detail wrong? It just doesn't happen that way. That's why it caught my attention right from the very beginning when I noticed that all of these eyewitnesses had basically the same account of what Jennifer was wearing and what her hair looked like. You just don't see that kind of consistency in eyewitness identification. And we're to the point now where we have multiple instances where Swainton has lied and cheated in this case. And this one is huge. He wrote into multiple witness statements that the witness saw Jen in a black shirt when, in my opinion, we all but know that she was wearing a white shirt at the time. This entire case has been manipulated by a crooked cop, plain and simple.
As Coyne continues with Cross, he points out that Swainson didn't see any bruises or welts or cuts on Jennifer during her interview, and he also confirms that she and Eva were separated during their interviews. And we also learn that both Jen and Eva were transported to the station by patrol officers. Swainson himself didn't take them on that first day. He just called ahead to the detectives at the station and filled them in on what he needed out of the statements. Coyne then asks if Jennifer was ever told that she was free to leave during the interview. And Swainson says that she was never informed that she could leave, but that really doesn't matter because police actually aren't required to inform you that you have the right to leave. You're just supposed to know, even at 15 years old, that when a police officer puts you in their squad car, drives you to the station, and then puts you into an interview room, that you're allowed to just stand up and walk away if you want to. I want to end our discussion on Swainson's testimony with this mention of Craig Peters. From the transcript, quote, Coin, did you ever talk to Craig on your cellular phone? Allen, I believe I did. Coin, did you ask him to come over? Swainson, in fact, yes, I did. Coin, so when was this? Swainson, I believe it was probably about the same time I was locating Kenneth Driver. Coin, the same day? Swainson, Yes. Coin. So Craig, in fact, was there when you... Swainson. No, sir, he wasn't there at the complex. He was elsewhere. I contacted him on the telephone. We were trying to make arrangements. If my memory serves me right, he said he would try to get over there to that apartment complex and meet me over at the manager's office. Coin. Well, did you ever see him face to face? Swainson. No, sir. Coin. Do you know where he is today? Swainson. No, I don't. Since Swainson never made any attempt to contact Craig about his conversation with Jennifer, I decided to drive out to his farm and ask him for myself. For some background, in Jennifer's written statement, she says that when she talked to Craig, they chatted about her problems with her mom and that Craig was trying to arrange a dinner with the family. This is how Craig remembers the conversation going, now 25 years later. First thing that I want to confirm with you, so Jennifer says that on the morning of the murder, that you had paged her, she said a couple times, and then she went down to Janet Dorsey's apartment and called you that morning. Mm -hmm. Do you recall if that happened? Yes, sir. Yeah, she had uh, paged me. I had uh, my baby mama with me, and I was going over there for Highway 3 to visit a friend. And, um, yeah, she paged me, and I paged her. And, uh, and then she called me, and uh, I told her that I'll pick her, you know, it's family friends, she always hung out with us and everything. And uh, I had uh, told her I was going to pick her up on the way back uh-huh. off of Highway 3. Well, in the process, when I went and on the way back, I was studying, you know, paying her to call me, you know, so I could tell her, you know, where to meet me in the front. But uh, it never was a call or response from it. So finally... Uh, the phone did ring back. It was the uh, detective. Okay. And the detective uh, was asking me, why was you, uh, why are you paging the phone like this? You know, I'm like, well, well, who is this? You know, and he was, uh-huh. I'm detective so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. You know, I can't remember everything that he was saying, but um, he was like uh, that he needed to, uh, to talk to me. So I said, okay, I said, I'm uh I'm headed back that way, you know, because that, that was on my route back home anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he told me to meet him at the office. 
So when I left my location and I went to the uh, to the office, the rent office, you know, I'm filled with some apartments and everything, and uh, no one was there, you know, and they never answered the phone. You know, I tried to call back. They never answered the number, nothing. So I, that, was, that was all I heard from that point on, you know, the whole situation. And, but I was... I was still in contact with the family. Uh-huh. So, you know, that's why, you know, I still kind of knew things that was happening, you know, but I just wasn't familiar with all the things that were dealing with the case. They just told me, you know, some woman got killed and they took Jennifer down for questioning and, you know, and shit, everything else after that was history, you know. So it was, it was the day of... The day of the murder. Is when they told you to go to the office. Yes, sir. And then when you showed up, nobody was there. Yes, sir. Did you ever? You, did you try to contact them back at that number afterwards? Yes, sir. Mm, they 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 wouldn't even answer. Uh huh. Yeah, they wouldn't even answer nothing. You know, so that's why it was all you know. It was all tricky for me. You know, so I was like, man, what's really going on? You know, because I heard about the murder. And I heard they took her down for questioning, and they never responded. He said he wanted to talk to me. You know, and I never heard nothing else. The detective that. It was Detective Swainson that had, that had contacted you. When he testified, he made it sound like uh, he had that conversation with you, asked you to go meet him there, and that you never showed up. He kind of made it seem like you were trying to avoid them. No, see, if he would have done that, then he'd have had my phone number, as he did. He would have been trying to reach out to me because I was basically really what you would say would have been the, the main witness uh-huh. Because I'm the last person who talked to her right. before that, you know, and conversated her at the time that they saying the murder was was being committed. Right. You know, so. Did they explain any of that to you on the phone? He said they asked you if you talked. Did they confirm no, with that, you that you talked no, to No, I her? asked him what was going on. And, and, and when I asked him, I said, well, what's going on? He was like, well, we just need to talk to you. That's just what he said, just like that. You uh-huh. know, they, they didn't they didn't say nothing about no murder. They didn't say nothing about, you know. Well, we investigating her. They just said, we just need to talk to you, you know. So uh-huh. that's all it was, you know. It was never nothing. It wasn't nothing expressed to me, you know, for me to get a, a clear understanding of what was really going on, mm-hmm. you know. And by me being the person who talked to her, you know, on the phone at the time that they saying this murder was going on, I figured y'all should have really been reaching out to me, you know. Right. I mean, I was, definitely wasn't hard to find. As far as Craig remembers, when he spoke with Jennifer that morning, they had made plans for him to pick her up and take her back to his place in her old neighborhood on the day of the murder. It's hard to say which is accurate, and I suppose that both versions could be true. I will say that Craig appeared to be a straight shooter. He was open and he was honest with me, and I think he was doing his best to remember the details. And since he struck me as an honest guy, I decided to go ahead and ask him about a sensitive topic. I pointed out earlier in the episode that Craig said that he was a little spooked when the police kept asking him why he was paging Jennifer so much. Well, prior to me heading out to interview Craig, I ran a background check on him. In doing so, I found out that in May of that year, Craig had been charged and arrested for an alleged statutory rape. He was accused of having a sexual relationship with a minor. At the time of the murder, he was out on bond and he was awaiting trial. He had pled not guilty to the charge. But then I also noticed that on October 31st, the day after Jennifer's arrest, that charge was dropped. The timing looked suspicious to me. My initial thought was that the police leveraged the charge against him to keep him from testifying on Jennifer's behalf. 
So I asked him about it. And I have to admit, I was a little shocked by his response. You happen to remember what you were talking to her about that morning? Yeah, I was going to pick her up and go back. She was going back to the neighborhood because I was passing through where she lived. And uh, she was going to go back with us. Me and my girlfriend, she, or baby mama, she was going to go back with us and uh, to the house. Because, see, they used to live in our neighborhood. Uh-huh. So they had a lot of friends over there. So she used to just come, you know, just hang out, you know, and just chill. And, you know, it was more or less, you know, just like a neighborhood thing. Because they was kind of like, you know, didn't know a whole lot of people, you know. Right. So we just kind of like bought a man as family and, you know, looked out for him. Uh, if you don't want to talk, we don't have to, but I was, I want to make sure I clear up an, an address. So at the time you had a pending charge, mm-hmm. um, for, uh, uh, chi- a child sexual assault or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. And all I can see in the court records is that it was dismissed. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want, can you, ex- can you explain what that was yeah. and why it was dismissed? Yeah. They thought that me and Jennifer was messing around. That's what that whole deal was. Okay. Until, you know, like the mom and them say, Oh no, that was. You know, that's just what all the speculations was uh-huh. because we was always together. Right. You know, and, and that's how they end up getting it all dismissed. And then, you know, me and the family got back like we supposed to be and, you know, start. So that charge, I didn't realize that. So that was regarding Jennifer. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so that charge was filed a few months before that. Who did, who filed the charge? Her mom. Her mom filed yeah, it. Yeah, her mom filed it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this situation with Craig is a lot more complex than I initially thought. A few months before the murder, it seems Jackie had become suspicious of the amount of time Jen was spending back in the old neighborhood with Craig. According to Craig, after hearing some rumors, Jackie filed a police report. But then after Jen got arrested, Jackie dropped the charges. You can see that in the court files online. It says charges were dropped by the complainant. Now, to be honest, I don't know what to think about the whole situation, what it means or if it means anything at all. But at the end of the day, my job is to report the facts. And there you have it. Do I think that it means Jen didn't call Craig that morning? No, I don't think that at all. And really, that's all that matters for our investigation. Swainson had the pager. He testified that he called and spoke with Craig about it. And Janet also confirmed the calls in her interview with the police. At best, I think this adds some context about what Jen may have been planning to do for the rest of the day and might explain why neither side called Craig to testify. While this new information about Craig Peters may seem like the most interesting part of this episode, it most definitely is not the most important part. Craig actually played a very minimal role in this case. There was a time when it seemed like the call to Craig could have been an alibi, when we thought that the time of death was 9.15am. That call at that point became critically important. But now that we know that the ambulance wasn't called until 9.42 or 9.44am, There's too much of a gap between the time of the page and the time of the murder to say that that call completely alibis Jennifer, because we have no way of knowing how long it took. But what is very important is that we take a very close look at anything that Roy Swainson had his hands on in this case. We need to look through all of those witness statements and even take a really close look at Katie and Youngster's statements, because now we know that they were interrogated for four hours before they came up with those written statements. There are a lot of things that we need to unpack here. And these are all discussions that we need to have in the weeks moving forward. It may seem like we're spinning our wheels, but we are getting in new information. We are narrowing down towards the truth. 
And during my trip to Houston last week, I was able to contact some new witnesses. And I was able to spend a long time talking to Juan Mendiola, who did give me new information, which is what you're going to hear next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. And Mike can be found at MurbGaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.